text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. We looked last week at the end of the narrative of Saul being anointed king and all the unusual circumstances surrounding that. And this morning we look at Saul being proclaimed king to the people of Israel and some more unusual events that take place here. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matriites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we open your word, Lord, I pray that we would uh, be here today to hear from your word and treat it as what it really is. This isn't your word or men's wisdom or man's word, but these are your words that we find in the scripture. Help us to be people, Lord, that hang as though our life is dependent upon hearing from You. Lord, help us see Your glory in this passage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by having you consider a question. When was the time in your life when you have grown closest to the Lord. I suspect if we got to listen to each other's testimonies, which would be good to do, we should do more of, listen how the Lord has worked in our lives. I'm guessing many, if not maybe the majority, if we were going to be honest, would admit that It's during difficult times that we tend to grow close to the Lord 
And it's during easy times that we tend to stray away from the Lord. It's in the time of discipline or maybe repentance or broken heartedness over our sin that our hard hearts can become softened to grow. We might think that if the Lord was going to do good to us, He would do the easy thing. But as we know in our own stories, and especially in the Scripture, that in the worst of circumstances, God does His greatest work. The greatest sin in the world was the killing of the Son of God and the greatest work ever done for mankind was in the killing of the Son of God. It's an irony that we experience in reality and we see in the Scripture. We're told in Hebrews that those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And we get this example in verse 10 of chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. Giving the example of how our earthly parents disciplined us. He says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He, being God the Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we get this picture of earthly parents who aren't all-knowing, aren't all-wise, and they discipline what in the way that seems best to them. But God the Father disciplines those whom He loves for their good so that they'll be trained by it. And it's interesting that passage says it leads to peace. You know, we think of discipline and tribulation as like this horrible thing, but it's a momentary time that is working for our peace. And as we consider Israel at this point in time in their history, we see God working discipline and judgment for their ultimate good. Especially as we see Saul being publicly chosen by God to be their king. You know, it's interesting. We can talk about types of Christ. Characters in the Bible that point us to Christ. And when most of the time when we talk that way, we think of positive characters like Abraham or David. But there's also types of Christ in the negative sense where Christ is the opposite of the negative characters displayed before us. You have the seed of the woman represented in David and the seed of the serpent more represented in Saul. 
and you have Cain and Abel, but both the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman teach us about the glory of the King. And as we... I mean, we experience this just in everyday life. Maybe you've had a boss before that uh, you just thought was a pretty good boss. You were thankful for them. But then maybe they moved away and you got a new boss that was not nearly as kind, was not nearly as gracious or encouraging. And through that negative scenario, circumstance, you begin to learn a little bit of the glory of your previous boss. You know, we we do this all the time. We see negative or we see unrighteousness in our hearts long for righteousness. We see cowardness in our hearts long to see courage. This happens naturally in us. It happened for Israel. They looked, if you remember in chapter 8, at Samuel's sons. Samuel's getting old. And they see that Samuel's sons are wicked. And they long for a king like the nations. Now, So isn't this interesting? They're longing to not have God as their king, but to have a king like the nations is wicked. And yet, those same people can look at wicked sons and long for something better. And you and I do the same thing every day. So as we come to this text, I want us to come asking the question, what do we learn about us and about God in light of this revelation from God's Word of events that have happened in history in, uh, in Israel's history. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 10, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. We just came from chapters 9 and the first 16 verses of chapter 10 from the context of God secretly revealing His choice for the first king in Israel. God revealed it to Samuel, and Samuel revealed it to Saul. But it's a secret to everyone else. And now it's going to go public to Israel. So let's start in verse 17. And this is under your first point in your notes, which states, listen to God's Word that exposes your counterfeit kings. In verse 17 we read, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now Mizpah was the place, if you remember back in chapter 7, where Samuel called the people together and they've just been being ravaged by Yahweh. And 
He confronts them in their sin and they repent. If you remember, they say, intercede for us, pray for us. And Samuel offers a sacrifice. The Philistines are bearing down on Israel. Samuel prays for them. And right as he's sacrificing a lamb, there's a thunderous sound that confuses the Philistines and Israel defeats them. And so now they're being called back to this place. The same place. He calls the people together and said to the people of Israel, you can imagine, just put yourself in as an Israelite. Okay, Samuel's calling us together. He's already kind of chewed us out once for desiring a king. Is this going to go good for us or bad for us? It would be quite the ordeal to get all the tribes together in one place. You can imagine the murmur among the tribes wondering what was about to take place. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And so Samuel quotes Exodus 20, verse 2, the beginning of the Decalogue. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And He reminds them that He is their deliverer. And then in verse nine, he says, or 19, He says, but today you have rejected your God. How do you think the people of Israel feel now? Oh, what's about to come? The prophet is speaking to us. We're reminded that Yahweh is our Savior. That He's the one who gives us hope. But we've just been told that we have rejected Him. You can imagine what they must be thinking. Today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to Him, set a king over us. This is the height of insanity. The One who saves from all calamity from all of your enemies, the one who's been faithful in the past, you have rejected Him, Israel, and you have asked for another king. They might be saying, no, we didn't. We still want you as our God, but we just want a a little king like the nations. Well, God, through the prophet, says, no, you want to replace me. You don't want to live by faith in Yahweh. You want to see your King. You want to know how 
powerful your army is. You don't want to have to live by faith. If James were there, he could rightly say what we read in James 4.4 when he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, he who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It would be right to call them adulterous people. Cheating on Yahweh. Replacing Him with someone else. Making friendship with the world. This is what they've done. They've looked around and they say, we're odd. We don't have a king. And they are demonstrating so clearly what Paul describes in Romans 1 when he talks about all humanity being fallen and lost. And in Romans 1.22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We don't want You, God. Give us a mortal man that will get old and die. This is happening in Israel. In this gathering, we know because we read on that this is when their king is being presented to them. You might think of this day. I guess every week I'm, I'm using illustrations from little girl movies. But on Coronation Day in the movie Frozen, it's a big day. It's an exciting day. This is an odd Coronation Day, isn't it? The assembly gathers together. It seems like a judgment day. Talk about a killjoy. You know, these stinking prophets... They ruin the mood on a day that should be glorious, but He starts it out pointing out their sin. And my challenge to you is that you need to listen to God's Word even when it exposes your little kings, your little kingdoms. I don't know if I don't know if you're like me, but if you are, you kind of know your little areas where you go get pleasure that you're not letting God into. You know, he can't touch these so much. And we justify them in different ways, and I'm saying, listen to the word of God. Let your idols be exposed so that you can wholly seek God and the King. Secondly, know that God disciplines those whom He loves even through cowardly kings. The way God works for our good is amazing. Look at verse Look at the end of verse 19. Now therefore, he says, 
Present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Imagine this. Here's your sin, Israel. Now, present yourself before the Lord. You imagine this in your sin? You just get sin exposed in your life? Okay, now come before God. Come present yourself before the Lord. If there wasn't trembling going on, which I think there was, there ought to be. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now if they were good Israelites, what story would be coming to mind? Remember the story of Achan? When Joshua brings all of Israel near, and they start casting lots in Achan's tribe and family come up, and he has been hiding loot, and then his family is killed for their sin. Now, I'm guessing that this, up to this point, they don't know what is coming. But the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. We don't know anything else from Scripture about that tribe. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Now, God is publicly saying, I'm doing something here. In Proverbs 16.33, we read, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is God putting publicly on display, I am choosing Saul. I'm the one choosing Saul, even though other places it says they chose Saul. We see God's sovereignty here publicly put on display, which would have to happen if there's never been a king in Israel, a monarchy, well then there's going to have to be a public, decisive moment where people know who their king is. But isn't it interesting that when the when Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot, it says, but when they sought him, he could not be found. Can you imagine all the people saying, so where is he? They start looking. I don't know how long the pause is because they went looking for him. They couldn't find him. So they inquired again, of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. Now, I think we're supposed to find a little bit of, I mean, can you imagine the scene? 
Where is he? Where is this Saul? Where is he at? Now, he already knows that he's going to be chosen. And the Lord exposes him and says he's hiding among the baggage. And can you imagine him standing up? I mean, he's not short. He's the tallest one in Israel. The biggest one. He's a young, strong man. And he kind of stands up. You could just picture this. Hey, you know, here I am. And then it says, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Do you, do you see your mighty king hidden in the baggage? Stand up, I'm guessing a little sheepishly. Behold, here's your king. Here's whom the one the Lord has given to you. And yes, it's working in His sovereign plan for their good. But this king, this first moment of glory is not just an accident, but we just see a character flaw, a lack of trust from the very beginning all the way through, this kingship, this line is doomed for destruction. Do you see Him whom the Lord has chosen? It is amazing because it's at this moment in the text you would expect judgment to come. I mean, you kind of expect what's coming at the end of this lot. But it's, Here's your king. It's almost you can picture people being like, oh, this is, this is when we get our king. This is what we wanted. It looks like he's not judging us. It looks like this isn't going to turn out the way we thought. And yet, as we see in other places in Scripture, sometimes God's most severe judgment is to permit our sin and its consequences. One of the ways God uses to discipline His people may be to let you taste the bitterness and the emptiness of your sin and your idols. They never come through. They never momentary pleasure that leaves you more empty than where you started. It's just like the worst thing ever because it's like, you know, you watch an alcoholic and as you go and you do get some comfort there, the continual emptiness and brokenness that results. It never lasts. That's how our sin is. And God in His love gives them Saul to be their king. To let them see what a king like the nations will be like.
And we know that this is what God is doing because in Hosea 13.11, we read, speaking of this event, I gave you a king in my anger. This is not God saying, this is blessing right now. He's saying this is discipline right now. This king is given in the anger of God for their idolatry, their adultery, their rejection of Him. And I want us to apply this to our lives. How often do we go to God and in a sense start wrestling the reins out of His hands? So here's the one who loves us always. Always works for our good. He's the one that delivers us from our calamities. And yet, we get an idea or we start to get wooed and it's like we go and we start wrestling for those reins. And it may be that God sometimes says, grab on. Here's your king. You want it? You want to see where this goes when you have control. But what do we see here? Even in God doing that, who's in control? God is so amazing that even in our stubborn rebellion, He can be teaching us His glory and how He's the one who satisfies And the third thing I want us to see here, recognize the glory of Jesus in contrast to mortal man. Israel, notice what he says at the end of verse 24. Here's your king, Israel. And all the people shouted, long live the king. This is the first time recorded in history that this saying is spoken. It's still a tradition for many kingdoms today. The people scream out, long live the king. You know, this is Israel figuring out, it doesn't look like we're getting judgment. He's tall. He's handsome. We'll forgive him for hiding in the bags and looking like a coward. Long live the King! And it's theologically an ignorant thing to say. Because if the Israelites had listened to the prophecy of Jacob, when Jacob prophesied over Judah, What did he say? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, Jacob said, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So their great-granddaddy over Judah and not Benjamin said the scepter is not going to leave Judah. Long live the king! A Benjamite king is doomed to fail. God has already revealed this. This is not going to work out. 
And so we see that this is not going to be the type in a good way of Christ that is coming as King. Also, Richard Phillips points out something really interesting. He says, first, whatever we may think of Saul's hiding among the baggage, Jesus also hid His royal calling from the people of Israel. Mark records that when Jesus performed the miracles of healing, He instructed the recipients not to identify Him. Jesus charged them to tell no one about His divine power. The reason for Jesus' messianic secret was not His fear or reluctance, but the fact that He had come first to die for our sins and only later to return in royal glory and power. So here's the contrast we see. Saul is hiding his kingship as he's hiding in the baggage because of fear. And Christ is hiding it because He wants to make it to the cross at the right time and die. Christ was not cowardly. And His reasons were others-oriented, not self-preserving-oriented like Saul's. Secondly, there's a contrast in Saul in Samuel's acclamation that says, there is none like him among all the peoples. He was talking about Saul's height, his image, his outer image. He says there's none like him among all the people. And it's also true in an opposite way. We know that there was nothing about Jesus' appearance that would attract us to Him from Isaiah 53.2. But we can point to Jesus and say, there's none like Him among all the people inwardly. He was without sin. This statement is built for Christ. All throughout the New Testament, even even uh, Pilate says, I find no guilt in Him. He's preeminent, Paul says in Colossians. Above every other person, there is none like Christ. He's Hebrews 7.26 describes Him as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And as we see this picture of, of Saul where the people seem to be, okay, okay, He's our King. And we feel what's lacking in it. We long for a courageous one that we can say he's not like anyone else inwardly and then fourth observe god's law daily in order to remain a humble servant of the king this is amazing look at verse 25 he says or it says then samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. There's little doubt that 
what he wrote was Deuteronomy 17, where the rules for a king in Israel were laid down. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. I want us to see this. Because as a king is chosen for Israel, that king is subject to God and to His law. And it is amazing what we read about the rules for a king. Look at Deuteronomy 17, starting verse 14. He writes, Moses writes, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it, that's where Israel is right now, and then say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he... Now, get this. This is what kind of king the Lord wants. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, or shall, or, or nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He's saying, this king, when you get a king, don't let him be like all the other kings that just build this big army and, and gather riches and have many wives. And then look at what it says. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Make sure you copy it down accurately, King. Write down the law. And it shall be with him and he shall read it when? All the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That is, this is amazing that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Write down the law. Read the law daily so that when you read, you will tremble before the King in heaven and you won't become proud and rule harshly over your brothers. And it's amazing how Jesus Christ was this King, was He not? He says, everything I speak, I speak the words the Father has given Me. He lives His whole life according to the will of God. He fulfills the law and the prophets. He doesn't abolish them. He comes as a fulfillment of them. 
Is He not a king who puts others first as He lays down His life and dies for them? It's this law that I believe Samuel wrote out for Saul. And here's the challenge I give to you in number four. Observe God's law daily so that you can be a humble servant to the king. Because the same thing will happen to you that would happen to any king. As you get away from the Word of God, you will become proud. And you will quit fearing the Lord and start putting your hopes elsewhere. Just because you're not the king of Israel doesn't mean that we don't need... Isn't it amazing? Daily Bible reading or the very same thing will happen to us. By the way, Wednesday nights, we're going through personal spiritual disciplines, which is talking about the disciplines we have as Christians to keep us becoming more like Christ, humble and loving each other. And we're on Bible reading right now. And then we're going to get into Bible study and prayer and fasting and fellowship and all the others. So Wednesday night, 6.30, we're going to encourage each other in daily Bible reading. Finally, look at point five here. Examine yourself to see if your heart has been touched by God. Look at how this passage ends. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts had been touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Here's the irony. We might think because Saul is not a type of Christ in the good way that these guys are right. How is he going to save us? Well, here's the problem. They don't submit themselves under a sovereign God. God has made Saul king in Israel. So whether they didn't like his cowardness or they could justify their arguments, the Scripture's account to those men are worthless men. And it's no surprise that when we come to Romans chapter 13, in one of the most wicked places on the earth where Nero is ruling over Rome, the Apostle Paul says, the Lord is the one who's put governments over you. Submit to them. Pay taxes. Or else we would be in the same boat. Worthless fellows who scoff at the sovereign God. I mean, there's a lesson here from these people to learn. But on a spiritual level, has your heart been so touched by God that you see Jesus 
as the fulfillment of the good promised King that will reign forever and ever, forever. So that you say, I'm following Him. My heart has been touched. My allegiance, my loyalty, even though it may be failing at times, is going with Him. He is the King. That's the question I want you to consider. Do you care about Jesus Christ? This loving King. I mean, isn't it, it, it... Even of Saul, what, is it, what does Saul say? But he held his peace. Saul could have had these men killed. Saul held his peace. Well, Jesus Christ, while He was on earth, held His peace. And the doors of grace are offered to all humanity. Come to Me, sinners. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He came to, for the, to save sinners. That's why He came. But know this, that same humble King will come again with His mighty angels in a flame of fire. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And when He comes on that day, blood is dripping from His robe and He is riding a white war horse and He will tread the winepress of the wrath of God and He'll rid the earth of unrighteousness and evil and anyone who has rejected Him. And so you have this King of patience and mercy and humility who says, come to Me. Come to Me. I am coming again. And if you do not come to Me, know this, this humble King is also a strong King. And the people that submit to Him can know that their Lord will bring justice and righteousness to the earth. And so right now, every one of you are eternal souls. You will never cease to exist. You will never cease to exist. And you live in this time of opportunity to choose Christ, the One who offers salvation to you, but there will be a day when that door closes and there will be no more opportunity. And so come to Christ the King. If you will bow down and say, I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus Christ paid for sins, became sin on my behalf so that I might become His righteousness. This life Jesus lives is given to those as a gift to those who will trust in Him by faith. We ought to just stand up and worship right now knowing we've been given the opportunity. We've heard the truth. Has your heart been touched to come to Christ? Father, I pray that all of us would be so thankful that You are our King. Yes, we know that we may have trials, troubles, and tribulations in this world, but You've overcome the world. The time of discipline where You're forming us into Your image can be painful, but that won't be forever. One day we'll be like You. Father, You are a worthy King.
We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.